Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. Ever since I was a kid exploring the Pacific coastline along Malibu in the 1960s and 70s, I've been fascinated by great whales. I can remember seeing them spouting and cruising just offshore while sitting on the beach or on a surfboard. Then in 1970, my sister got a very special record called Songs of the Humpback Whale by Roger Payne. It was an astonishing and haunting series of recordings of the vocalizations of whales, and it was a sensation. So when I recently heard about an interesting and truly unique interaction between scientists, researchers, and a humpback whale named Twain off the coast of Alaska, I became intrigued. In this show, we're joined by three scientists involved in the experiments called Whale SETI because it has implications for possible communications with extraterrestrial civilizations in the future. Our guests are Dr. Brenda McCowan, a professor of population health and reproduction in the School of Veterinary Medicine and co-director of McCowan Vandalist Laboratory of Biobehavioral Complexity at UC Davis. Joining her are whale expert and researcher Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation and from the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, astronomer Lawrence Doyle. All three are co-authors of the recent paper published in the scientific journal Peer J, titled Interactive Bioacoustic Playback as a Tool for Detecting and Exploring Non-Human Intelligence, Conversing with an Alaskan Humpback Whale. And they join us now. Brenda McCowan, Fred Sharp, and Lawrence Doyle, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. Hey, Dave. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start just kind of getting some basic background on, on each one of you and your roles with this amazing whale SETI communication study. So let's start with you, Brenda. Tell us a bit about what you do and your role in this study. Sure. Um, I'm a professor with the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis. Uh, my background is in studying animal behavior and communication. Uh, so my role in the study is to bring my expertise in, in acoustic analysis and animal communication to the project. And Fred, what about you? Yeah, good morning, Dave. During the duration of this study, I was a member of the Templeton-funded and SETI-administered uh, whale SETI team studying these animals. I have had the good fortune to be working with humpback whales in Southeast Alaska for over, I guess, going almost four decades now. And it's been a wonderful ride. My interests are primarily looking at the social structure of these large bubble netting teams and looking at their acoustics, behavior, and tool-using behavior, looking at uh, these remarkable bubble structures that they use, not only for herding and corralling the prey, but various forms of communication. And Lawrence, what about you? Uh, my name is Lawrence Doyle. I'm at the SETI Institute, and uh, I'm an astrophysicist, but I've also been involved for a couple of decades with work with uh, animal communication and the application of information theory to quantify the communicative exchanges of animals. And I've basically been interested in applying the mathematics of information theory to derive intelligence filters for SETI. So similar to uh, people going to Antarctica, for example, to study Mars, um, as a metaphor for um, Mars, Antarctica is a pretty good place to explore possibilities for biology to survive and so on. And similarly, um, 
it occurred to us that there are lots of communication non-human intelligences on earth that we should be studying in preparation for the possible reception of a you know an interstellar message so basically we're developing intelligence filters for seti well let's talk about this this whale seti project itself um, what was the genesis of it and and who all is involved who are the different organizations involved and you know where you get your funding from and the permitting system and all that. So um, why, don't, why don't we start with you, Lawrence? Well, um, Jill Carter, a colleague at the SETI Institute, was refereeing some proposals for the Diverse Intelligences Program at the, at the Templeton Foundation, and she decided she would propose. And so she said, could anybody take over refereeing some of these proposals? And I said, sure. But as I read the diverse intelligence's purpose um, to discover non-human intelligence, and I thought, well, uh, we're doing similar work. So I decided to propose as well. So we got two grants actually, which is a bit unusual. And um, we could then go into the field and start uh, studying non-human intelligence with the idea of quantifying it. Fred, anything you want to follow up with? Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, Lawrence actually showed up um, years before that, maybe even a decade before that. Lawrence, Brenda, and their colleague, Sean Hanser. And in the spirit of cross-disciplinary work and the spirit from one, one entity to another, reaching out just like curious aliens, they reached out and said, um, we'd heard about your program and we think our, our conception of of otherworldly intelligences and communication systems can be furthered by collaborating, and we've never looked back. Well, let's talk about the the actual species in this study, the humpback whales, very well known, popular animal, but I bet a lot of us really don't know that much about them. So can you just talk about them briefly in terms of their evolution? You know, because they started in the, we all started in the sea and came to land, but they went back to the sea. Give us a little whale, uh, humpback whale 101, Fred. Well, humpback whales are definitely the renegade of the baleen whale or mysticide family. Just like us, they have a paired blowhole. Uh, they have retained much of their typical mammalian voice box, their laryngeal apparatus. They have ginormous flippers. They are um, a middle head heavyweight going to about 50 feet. And they look like a giant pickle. They have these sensory nodules all over their muzzle. And they're a wonderfully affable animal. You know, this notion about uh, gentle giants and, uh, and the um, helper of baby seals. Well, it turns out science has showed us that these animals are remarkable. A paper was published recently by Bob Pittman and colleagues showing over 100 examples of the humpback whale coming to the aid of of other species that are stricken, that are bereaved by predators. And um, they have an amazing acoustic repertoire, their songs, social sounds, feeding calls, make app clicks. And um, you couldn't ask for a more wonderful and bizarre uh, animal as a uh, humpback whale for an alien analog. Yeah, when I was a kid, I remember when um, Roger Payne's recording Songs of the Humpback Whale came out on an LP on vinyl. (laughs) 
And I can remember listening to that at our beach house, looking out on the ocean, the Pacific Ocean in Malibu, and just being enthralled by how strange and beautiful those whale songs were. Yeah, to this day, we're still puzzling over the specific function of the song. Songs are given by the males in a breeding context in the subtropical wintering areas. You know, and so we assume that there's some sort of courting signal for females or to um, ward off other male conspecific rivals. But, you know, it it's, doesn't really fit. We haven't really figured out what exact, what exact components of the song the female uses to assess male quality. There's an also notions that the songs are used, used um, by males in semi-collaborative ventures. And um, so, again, it makes a great... Uh, a great alien analog because complex, rich signals that we're still trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, they're um, very social mammals too, aren't they? Yes, when they up in the temperate feeding areas, when they migrate north or poleward in each of the hemispheres, summer they can band together in quite large aggregations. Particularly up here in the North Pacific, we've got one of the most highly complex social groupings. We are uh, research uh, over the years, specifically with the Alaska Whale Foundation, has shown that these animals can form enduring enduring bonds. This has also been work has been done by Janet Ray and her team in the central BC coast. They've shown that these animals form these enduring bonds. Uh, there might be individuals within pods that create a task specialized with specific roles within the team. That includes the bubbler, laying down the, the bubble-like tool net. There's these specialized calls that the whales give, specifically when they're exploiting Pacific schools of Pacific herring. They appear to have different, also different positions when they're diving and herding the prey. And yeah, these, these calls are really cool and that they, they're a form of, I call them Hopkinsian, almost like, like uh, herding beacons in that they, they're an interspecies signal that, uh, doesn't appear to be you know, all, all the beneficence that the whales show for other animals, baby seal pups and dolphins and sea lions that are being bereaved. That doesn't, they don't extend those graciousness to the herring. And they like to gobble them up with the aid of these very loud uh, acoustic signals. Wow. And um, I back in the 70s and 80s in particular, you know, a, a very, three words you saw everywhere, save the whales. Um, they're they're pretty much a, a kind of a conservation success story, the humpbacks, are they? Can you tell us how they're doing compared to, you know, back in the 80s? I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, we are so privileged to have had forward-looking legislation that was produced by our country, both the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. And humpback whales were one of the original species on on both those landmark pieces of legislations that subsequently have become global models. And um, we're pretty we're pretty fortunate, darn tootin', in that um, uh, of the 14 independent populations of the humpback whales worldwide, 10 of those now are considered to be recovered or near recovered, and they are considered delisted. And along the Pacific coast here, I mean, you know, growing up here in the Salish Sea in Puget Sound, it, you, just, you just didn't see humpbacks. You, They'd been gone for 50 years and there was nary one around. And now they are just roaring back. We've got work by um, Center for Whale Conservation and Mark Mallison and others have shown that there's a, these six generations now of humpback whales returning to the Salish Sea. And we're seeing that all up and down the coast and through much of the world's world's oceans. And um, 
it's really a testimony to you to the survival intelligence and cleverness of these amazing beings in that you know still you know, even though we, we've, we've quit harvesting them directly uh the fact that though they can recover you know in the face of you know massive shipping shipping ship strikes are a problem for large whales and uh fishing fishing we um that's problematic for entanglements acoustic noise ocean acidification ocean pollution change in warming temperatures it's amazing that they have done so well and continue to do quite well it appears that the group here in the north pacific now instead of being limited numerically by just recovery they appear to have come into equilibrium with their food supply so we are starting to see some variations and stabilizing the population but but that's good that means that they're they're back and um we can enjoy them and spend more time now in interesting studies like this to try to get inside their communication. Well, let's talk about this, this study, and let's talk about one individual whale named Twain. Fred, can you tell us about Twain, characterize this individual? Twain is a female, older female, at least 35, maybe 40 years of age. Would you like that name that was, uh, we need lots of whale names. There's so many whales around these days, and I'd ask my mother for a good name, shorter than flukes. She said, hmm, let's go with Let's go with Sammy. Let's go with uh, let's go with Mark Twain. This individual comes up. It's predominantly Maui, Mauian and Hawaiian Polynesian in its wintering and birthing affiliations, but it comes up to Alaska on a regular basis. And um, I'll let Brenda talk about how the experiment unfolded. Yeah, let's talk about the experiment itself. It's in Brenda. It's characterized in your paper as a quote rare opportunistic event. Can you tell us how so. Tell us about this, the actual experimental setup, and how you did this. Sure. We um we were out in Southeast Alaska waters doing a series of playback studies that summer, and the reason why this was opportunistic is that the day before uh, we did this specific playback, we recorded a really high quality contact call called a whoop. And I thought that it was such a great high quality call to use in the next set of experiments because it was in the population and we recorded it from the population. And so we used that whoop call the following day. And we were around a, a, a small group of whales, uh, one whale in particular being quite close to the boat, that was Twain. Uh, and we used this, uh, this call and um, after three times of uh, producing this, this exemplar, Twain called back. Um, and this is very interesting because we actually exchanged with Twain 36 times over a 20 minute period um, where we had no whoops before, we had a baseline period and none after we finished the playback. So it was a really um, rare opportunity to have this sort of exchange or turn taking, this what we call in quotes conversation a very limited conversation, but yet a conversation with Twain. Uh, and uh, this doesn't happen very often. So that's why it was both rare and, and opportunistic. Can you tell us about the equipment you use, the, the ships, um, the type of equipment you're using, the, the number of obser observers on your team? Kind of break down for us, you know, what you had in place to do this. So we had, we had an underwater speaker from Cetacean Research Technology, and we had two hydrophones in the water. Um, recording what we were doing. And then we had two people working on the computers in, ter in terms of recording and playing back the signals. And then we had several observers on top of the, of the vessel who were blind to the experiment. So they were documenting the whale's behavior, the non-vocal behavior that the whale was doing, and caught it on video. 
and was able to to describe how Twain was interacting around the boat because she circled the boat the entire time we were doing this this playback. Um, and so it was really nice because it was completely blind to the experiment itself. Um, and it was really quite extraordinary. So the observers, the blind observers, as you put it, they don't they don't know when you're making calls or what's happening. They're just observing the whale's behavior. That's right. They, they didn't know that we were doing, we were in the middle of the playback. I mean, they knew we were going to doing a playback experiment, but they didn't know what we were doing, what was happening um, in uh, underwater with the, with the sound. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with three of the principal researchers in the recent communications interaction with the humpback whale known as Twain. Brenda McCowan from UC Davis, Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation, and Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute will rejoin us shortly. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the recent breakthrough communication study with a humpback whale named Twain with scientists Brenda McCowan from the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation, and Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute in Mountain View. Okay, um, can you tell us a bit more about the recordings you made of the humpbacks before using them with Twain? So we, we had two goals. One was to get as many recordings as we could of the whale's own vocalizations. And the second was to do these playback studies with a number of different kinds of calls. So the whoop call was one of many types of calls that we actually played back. And so we were recording these animals, you know, prior to this particular day. And some of the um, recordings that we got had a, a real a high diversity of vocalizations like Fred talked about. Uh, humpback whales have one of the most diverse vocal repertoires on the face of the planet. I always used to say that any sound I've ever heard, humpbacks make. So um, they produce a, a wide variety of different kinds of sounds. And so we were able to capture all of that. And then as we did with the whoop call, we, could, we can use that in playbacks as well. Okay. Can, can we listen to one of these, the, the call and response between the boat and the hydrophone underwater and Twain? Can we, can we listen to that and have you describe what's going on for us? Sure. So that's our playback. That's the playback um, exemplar that we produced uh, in, through the underwater speaker. And that's Twain's response. Wow. That is, that is really cool. That's just an amazing sound. So she's responding. Again, our exemplar going through the underwater speaker. And Twain's response. So how unusual is this? Has this ever been really done before where you've gotten you know, an interaction like this before with, with a humpback whale? How, how novel is this? That's a good question for Fred, who studied them for several decades. Um, uh, I think this is a pretty unique um, situation. I, we're certainly hoping that we can replicate it uh, and actually uh, be more even more adaptive in the way that we did the playback. What was really interesting about this particular ex- exchange is that although we only had one exemplar, we were able to, to sort of modify the timing of, of playing back. So we were doing this sort of dynamically. And, um, and Twain matched us. Twain matched the timing between our calls and her calls, which really made it seem quite intentional and uh, more like a, what I would call a conversation. But our goal is to be able to modify these signals in real time 
both with respect to the frequency of them, maybe adding or, or subtracting components from the calls to see how the whales respond. So I think it's a really exciting um, uh, paradigm to investigate sort of the components or units of compact whale communication that will help us decode what they're actually talking about. Yeah, exactly, Brenda. And these specific calls that we were using, they are called a throp or a wump call. And these are part of their large social sound repertoire. Uh, social sounds are they're almost sort of like a, 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 they're not language per se, as far as we know, but they're sort of have a language-like quality to them. And that when the whales are socially interacting and usually the larger the group, the more chatty they become. And these throp calls, they are known from all parts of the world, uh, from the humpbacks, wherever they've been studied and they're giving their social sounds, whether it's migration, feeding or breeding. This is a, an established part of their vocal repertoire. And anytime you have signals that are widespread within a species, you assume they have some important um, evolutionary function and you know deep phylogenetic origins and that they're probably an integral part of their communication system. They were first noted by Rebecca Dunlop's team off of Australia and subsequently have been described elsewhere. Some work that was done up in Glacier Bay, Alaska by Chris Gabriel and Lauren Wild. They were the first to sort of try to pick these out and say, these are good target for, for follow-up research because the animals appear to be doing them at a you know at a fairly, fairly uh, you know, regular rate. And they, you know, we don't really know what, you know, these they're kind of almost like contact calls within a flock of bird birds. We we don't really know what kind of information is embedded in these signals, but we do know we have of these 36 calls that we have from Twain, those are really nice to for, for further analysis because across the encounter, Twain went from sort of being like like what like you know in, engaging like well what is this and closing the distance to the boat and then coming into synchrony with the with the temporal playbacks and then eventually disengaging and and swimming off and so it's really interesting to think about you know what could have been exchanged and uh, who knows uh, contact caller maybe Train was saying accept all cookies. <laughs> Well, could you just kind of describe um, specifically Twain's behavior before, during, and after the interaction? Tell us about what she was doing. Yeah, it was um, it was a very foggy, calm morning, perfect for acoustics. Uh, the sound channels were wide open. You could hear animals, um, you know, extending off and into the fog for miles underwater. And as the uh, we dropped the uh, hydrophone, we do a twenty-minute pre-recording to establish the baseline level of signals being transmitted underwater by the whales. And then we initiated, after 20 minutes, we initiated a 20 minute playback period. Like seconds before we were getting ready to turn the speaker on, Twain pops up in a feeding activity about a hundred yards from the boat. And we started the broadcasts and um, initially it was almost like the whale almost just like froze for a few moments and had very shallow breathing it was just it was like it was kind of going like what's going on and there is the possibility that we were actually using twain's own call from the day before because the animal was subsequently learned was in the vicinity when you looked at the fluke id so it may have been this kind of interesting mirroring effect like when you hear your own voice and he's like you have this kind of curiosity thing initially and that sort of worked in our favor because um humpbacks when they're up in alaska 
tend to be 24-7 feeding machines, and it's hard to get their attention. But this one got Twain's attention, and the animal lingered in the vicinity for the duration of the playback. It actually continued to call as it exited the area. Once we turn our speaker off, it's like, hey, where'd you go? And so across this event, the animal went from this initial kind of like almost like shallow breathing and mobility to getting more getting more excited, a little bit more aroused with uh, we could tell the changes of the vocalizations are very diagnostic of these animals. These are definitely explosive creatures of breath. And um, we're also working on a, another study with one of our uh, one of our undergraduate uh, interns is taking the lead to analyze these uh, uh, aerial sounds and those can give you insight into their behavioral states and perhaps also conveying information. And so during the middle of the playback, you could hear a couple of these a little bit of wheezy sounds into the vocalizations suggesting um, some level of arousal and excitement. And then after about 17 minutes, the animals started to move around a bit more and um, a little bit wider perimeter and started rolling out. And so it was kind of neat. So across the whole event, we could see that the animal went through a number of uh, behavioral shifts. Almost makes me wonder because well, a lot of times when humans, when we hear our own recorded voice, especially for the first time, we have that reaction. Do I really sound like that? I wonder if Twain was thinking that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, what were your reactions um, when you saw this unfolding and then the results that led to this paper? That must have been, you know, a, a big aha wow moment. Can you, Brenda, maybe start with that? It was extraordinary. <laughs> it really was. I was completely shocked that we had this exchange back and forth 36 times. Um, you know, I've been studying animal behavior and communication for a couple of decades now, and um, I've never had an experience quite like that. And it just, you know, really pointed out to me how important it is for us to really begin to target individual whales um, or individual animals in general, right, in terms of doing these kinds of playback studies. Instead of looking at sort of population level responses, really trying to, to look at responses by individuals and dynamically changing it to see how the animals respond. So we're very excited about continuing that work. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, there's lo lots of playbacks have been done in terrestrial environments to birds and to mammals, and they've gotten you know, similar sort of interactions like this call, call, call and respond or antiphonal calling that. This is really the first time it's been done with the humpback whale. And it, it, playbacks in general lag behind the terrestrial environment using them to understand ocean beings. And that, that's why it was so exciting because it can be a really challenge to lock in and engage with, with these animals. Now, it's, the cool thing about humpbacks is that as their population increases and as we become better stewards of the oceans and thinking about their needs, we just become a lot better at handling our boats around them. We have whale watching guidelines and we will change shipping corridors and shipping speeds in their areas of high density habitat use. And it's really cool. And a lot of the a lot of the wintering areas now, there's these amazing interactions that are happening now with, with humpback whales and whale watch vessels. We call them friendly animals or curious animals. They'll come up and spend 20 minutes or two hours just sort of rolling and lollygagging, gagging around a boat and looking up at the passengers and and this is all kind of a very visually mediated interactions and so we we get the sense that the whales are interested in interacting and you know swimmers in the water in areas where it's um appropriate and legit to do so 
uh, where it's regulated, people talk about sort of, as I was moving my hands around, the whale was also moving its flippers. And so where we're starting to get these, these interactions with these beings, but um, both of us, both humans and humpbacks are highly vocal animals. And if there's going to be more elaborate interactions, this is probably the medium that it's going to occur on. And so we're really excited, excited about having that door open with this study. And Lawrence, what are the implications of this study for your work on SETI? Well, uh, it's a big, one example is it's a big assumption of SETI that um, an ETI will point, be curious, and extraterrestrial intelligence will point toward the Earth. While it's true that two goldstones across the galaxy could communicate with each other, of course, the lag time will be 200,000 years. But Goldstone being a radio telescope. Yes, a NASA tracking station, for example. And, uh, well, they could communicate across the galaxy. That's only if they're pointing at each other. If we go for a leak, like uh, Isle of Lucy or, you know, Howdy Doody, if there's a leak, we, we probably are limited in our current technology to be able to detect something maybe 10 light years away at most. So SETI relies upon the assumption that intelligence will be curious and want to communicate and reach out and so on. Well, this encounter certainly illustrated that intelligence and curiosity kind of come together and that Twain turned around and was interested in interacting. And uh, there's a paper coming up. Fred's the first author on this one, and it's a bubble ring being produced, it looks like, to amuse humans, or maybe it's a play invitation. But it's very interesting that one of the things we can answer that just doing radio astronomy will not answer, and that is, will they be pointing? Because right now in our current SETI efforts, that's an absolute requirement, that they be interested and that they want to interact and that they would point. And we could say, well, of course, humans are interested, but this illustrates that non-human intelligence species are interested. So that's just one example of questions we can answer that going to non-human communicative systems on Earth can begin to answer. I'm wondering also, we've been hearing a lot about artificial intelligence, AI. What role did that does that technology play or not in, in a study like this? And what, what might it be used as a tool for in the future? Well, um, AI is really good at pattern recognition. Let's call it uh, pattern recognition or image processing or something like that. Uh, it's popular nowadays to call it AI. But AI, uh, I don't believe, is going to be able to come up with something original. It's really good at doing multiple comparisons and uh, constraining possibilities and computing probabilities and all this sort of thing. But if we, for example, fed a whole bunch of humpback whale um, vocalizations into chat GPT, for example, and say, translate to French, <laughs> it doesn't, there's no, nothing out there for it to reference. I asked ChatGPT to come up with a new way to detect planets around other stars. I've, I've been involved in that field. 
And um, it started to tell me about gravitational lensing. I'm going, no, that's one of the newest ways. Come up with something that we don't know yet. And, of course, chat GPT, bless its heart, choked on that. So, you know, I think it's important to emphasize AI is very popular right now, and it can be very useful for things like um, coming up with a classification from audio into signal types. And in other words, getting, you might say, the phonetic alphabet of humpback whale. That's a perfect task for AI. But um, direct translation of one species to another, no. It's not up to it because that what we need for that, our approach, is to apply information theory to see what the carrying capacity of humpback whale is. In other words, with uh, information theory, we can characterize the, com the rule complexity within humpback whale. So we can actually say which is more complicated. For example, information theory could answer the question, is bee dance more complex than humpback whale or less? In other words, as long as we have signal units, we can compare in bits the difference between communicating systems. So that's a, something that, um, you know, information theory in an AI context could automate that process. But what it can't do is say, what is the meaning of these? And <clears throat> you have to be a little careful because, for example, let's take bees. Bees dance the angle from the sun to the honey source, but they do it in a very dark hive. And the sun is not shining in the hive, nor is the flower visible. They're talking about something they can't see. And, you know, humpback whales are very intelligent and they, more than likely, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between certain sounds they make and something that's necessarily present. They may be talking about herring that are two miles away. And let's go over there. You know, so it's kind of a symbolic communication system. So the safest way is to start with information theory, characterize the communication system's complexity. And then if you know the purpose of the communication, like to catch herring or to find a honey source or whatever, you can begin to extract the meaning, but you have to do it very carefully. And a human needs to be involved. It's not an automatic process like AI. Glad to hear that. And I might add, Dave, that um, AI was indirectly involved in the identification of this individual. There's a really cool program, online program now called Happy Whale. It was developed by Ted Cheeseman and his colleagues, and it is a massive humpback whale fluke ID database. It's like, um, and it's that, we actually use that to upload the image to that program. It's super user-friendly. It's powered both by researchers and citizen sciences. So they have, that there has a matching algorithm that has AI-like attributes that let us know right away, hey, this is Twain. And that's really cool because um, right after the playback, we could quickly learn who this individual was and start looking at the the animal's uh, sighting history, and so yeah, it's um, AI is definitely creeping into many forms of our research these days. 
Don't go away. When we come back from a brief break, we'll continue our conversation about whale SETI, the recent groundbreaking communication study with a humpback whale off the Alaskan coast. I'm Dave Schloom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Stay with us. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation on the fascinating communications interaction with a humpback whale named Twain off the coast of Alaska. Our guests are Brenda McCowan from UC Davis, Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation, and astronomer Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute. We've talked about the humpback whales, and Twain in particular. They're highly social, very intelligent uh, they they are highly evolved for their environment, the ocean, um, and and they use tools in a sense. You've mentioned bubble rings a few times, and Fred, I'd like you to tell us more about bubble rings. Tell, tell us what they are, how they're produced, and what they use them for. Yeah, you bet. You know, bubbles are a really cool form of tool using behavior and communication that we don't really get. As, as humans, because we don't really have an, an analog. Like we've got smoke rings and we've got smoke signals and maybe on a, on a frosty morning, you can see your breath, but it's not something that we have incorporated into regular usage and interaction and communication. So that's why they make great otherworldly analogs is because here's, here's a tools and signals that, that are outside of, of, of the human can. So right away, they're really interesting. And I've been very interested in looking at the what is it about bubbles that are useful to predators like this, and what is it about their visual or acoustic or mechanical uh, stimulus that they create that they're using to contain and corral these animals. And some of my uh, PhD work, I brought pairing schools into a lab and made artificial bubble nets to, to see how the fish responded. And as we predicted, the fish um, found these to be disruptive and disturbing. They're very reluctant to cross through a, a wall of bubbles. And so they were wind, wind up being a very effective. The fish were very uh, reluctant to cross through a corral of bubbles. And so they wind up being excellent, excellent forms of, of containment. And also their, their bubbles are extensively used by other species of cetaceans, whales and dolphins for potential forms of communication, uh, exhibiting basic emotions, and for things that we haven't quite discovered yet. And as Lawrence mentioned, uh, we've got a paper that uh, we've submitted for publication on bubble rings. And these are very unusual and interesting and uh, highly derived structures. They look like, look like smoke rings, and the whales, the humpback whales, blow them out of a single nostril during prolonged, friendly interactions with people. We've been able to make a call out, and we've recorded over I think nearly a dozen instances now of humpback whales blowing these bubble rings towards humans. And it's really crazy because like these, these whales that are doing this, they're different populations, different isolated populations. And there's something about humans that trigger these free living animals on their own volition. And it gets back to the whole thing with Lawrence talking about, about curious aliens that, you know, the, the Drake equation you know, ultimately, if we are going to make contact, we assume that animals, once they reach a level of sophistication, are going to be curious and want to reach out. And really cool, because these humpbacks 
on their own volition are coming up and creating these structures in the presence of humans. And it's like, hmm, what is, what's going on here? Are they, is, is there, is it just that they want an audience and they're hams or are they trying to provoke us somehow to get a, uh, get a response and how, how will we respond? You know, some of them do it almost like they're entertainers and they're diverse and they're swimming up through the middle of them and spouting in the middle and interacting with them. Other whales we've um, observed, they do it in a very sort of reflective environment where there's no boats of cheering whale watchers, but it's a, so not getting feedback from the audience effect. It's more like they're, they're inquisitive and maintaining eye contact with the swimmer in the water or the vessel when they're doing it. And so we're, we're, let's just put it away. We got a candidate signal. <laughs> we're super excited. We've got a candidate signal from these, uh, watery world beings and we are trying to figure out how to create bubble rings on the size that they deliver I mean, these rings are like, some of them are like you know 8 10 12 feet across and you know a foot thick within the the lumen of the bubble structure that can rising up very fast they're beautiful halo like structures and so we're super excited about taking it to the next step and getting securing the permits by the way all the work that we do uh, all our research is permitted by um, NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service that allows the that all our work our proposals get published in the Federal Register. So all citizens, both uh, within our country and worldwide, can go online and comment about this research. And mostly we want to make sure that we're not we're not doing any undue harm to the animals and that the work that we do feeds back into these populations so that um, and so we're really excited about securing permits to move forward to um, see if we can get the conversation going using these um, unusual and intriguing bubble effervescent mediums. Wow, that's amazing. It's interesting that if the encounter with Twain was kind of a realization of Star Trek IV, <laughs> <laughs> that um, the, the bubble ring production is reminiscent of the arrival where the aliens communicate in circular uh, writing. But the serious business is the bubble nets. Uh, maybe, Fred, you want to comment on bubble netting as opposed to bubble ring making. The bubble ring making may be a, an invitation to play, which makes sense. But bubble netting is serious feeding business. It is. It's all this kind beneficence that the whales extend to other organisms. It's, it's not, they definitely are serious when it gets down to feeding on herring. And these, they're basically a beautiful spiral that's deployed down, um, you know, probably a couple of atmospheres up to 60, 70 feet at times. And one whale swims in a spiral while emitting percolating bubbles out of the blowhole. And it's cool because it's a communal tool. It's not just uh, one whale that utilizes this bubble net, but it's, you know, sometimes up to a dozen or more whales all feeding in these big, you um, be very, very synchronized and very ordered hunting tactics. And they delay this trap, they create this sort of tunnel of bubbles or this, this ring, this, uh, this um, spiraling, inward spiraling. It's a very complex structure. And the whales all come rocketing up through the middle of it and using the surface also as a trap and allowing them to contain and corral the prey which they all subsequently engulf. And it's really cool because it, it's almost like if you were to look at the, the rules that define these bubble net teams, it's, you could go and go to any uh, 
any food co-op in our country and look at their guiding principles about in, inclusivity and everybody's welcome and the, the benefits accrue back to the to the individual. Um, it's 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 amazing. Also, like there appears to be elements of the incident command system where you have you know flexible spans of control and modular units that can easily interact. Sometimes they have different pods feeding in the area and they come and go at ebb and flow. And it's really cool that you know these these bubble tools are involved in. It's at times when they're giving their social chatter. We've targeted social chatter at times when two pods are joining or splitting. Sometimes the whales will do what we call their disaffiliation ceremonies, disaffiliation breaches, where as the towards the evening when the feeding tends to fall off, sometimes we'll get one breach or the entire pod will breach simultaneously almost as a kind of a, a signal that feeding's over. See you back here in the morning. And Brenda, you were you were going to do a study on the vocal repertoire changes with successful versus messed up uh, bubble netting, I remember. Yeah, we're, we're interested in looking at that explicitly to get a sense of more about meaning of these, these types of social sounds. So we, we're formally doing that study currently. It almost makes me wonder because, you know, we humans love our sports. That I wonder if the whales have the bubble games where they get together and, you know, put their best bubble makers up against each other's pods. <laughs> Funny. Well, that's a great that's a great point because um, we will see two groups feeding in the same vicinity and sometimes they'll merge. You know, two, two pods of a dozen whales will merge into these super pods that are enormous. And there it would stand to reason that when you have a very specific tasks that um, they this is it's a meritocracy. They're feeding on a highly divisible food resource, these fish schools. And it stands to reason that the they all have an interest in seeing the most efficient and adept bubble blower be the one that's that's deploying the nets. And so yeah, it's a it's a, it's a great great place for study thinking about evolutionary biology and task specialization with role fidelity. And um, we are able to track individuals over time and space. And um, particularly with their feeding calls, it, uh, you know, we've recorded hundreds of different whales that have drifted through these bubble netting teams. They appear to have open membership, but there appears to be this core of a couple of, couple of dozen whales that are almost uh, in fact, some of them we've never seen or photo ID'd them outside of one of these bubble net teams. So just like humans, they have they show a, a huge range within their preferences and uh, sociality. Apparently, you can. I think Fred's been involved in this. The, you can measure the mitochondrial DNA and tell if whales are related to each other and. Uh, it turns out that long-term, decades-long relationships between, you know, bubble netters that get together every year in Alaska to do bubble netting, and it's uh, essentially a long-term relationship based on ability. And humans have that. I belong to the astronomy, and now I belong to the marine biology uh, club, you might say. And uh, so humpback whales build long-lasting relationships based on ability, the ability to bubble net. And I believe uh, you get you can get drummed out of the bubble netters guild if you flub up a uh, bubble netting session. And uh, I think Fred's seen that happen. 
But it's interesting, humans and humpbacks share this long-term relationships, not based on family, but based on ability. Matt, would you like would you like to play uh, that com- that more complex a little bit of that longer uh, recording, and we could have maybe Fred comment on you know what we're hearing there. Now picture that coming from space. I just was. I was just thinking, oh my gosh, if I didn't know that was a humpback whale, I would think that sounds like an alien signal. Um, yeah, so it sounds, see, it sounds like something out of Ghostbusters, a classified floating apparition. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, there, there's one of these big, this came from a big bubble netting team that was in one of their moments of uncertainty and trying to figure out what was, and what we can tell what comes next. And uh, this was recorded over in Frederick Sound where, the animals don't have a type of social affiliations. And it appears that they, they're they more of kind of pickup teams. They've got a lot of individuals that they maybe got through the temp agency. They're a little less efficient. And so they seem to have more to talk about. And so this is one of these pods that was um, trying to get it together. Absolutely, as Spock would have said, fascinating. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you all for joining us to talk about this incredible uh, study of Twain the Whale and the interactions with you, with the hydrophone and the recordings and the implications for SETI. So uh, Brenda McCowan from UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation and Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute. Thanks for joining us. This has just been absolutely amazing. What What a fascinating story. And I look forward to more to come. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a ton. Thanks again to our guests, Brenda McCowan, Professor of Population Health and Reproduction in the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis, whale researcher Fred Sharp from the Alaska Whale Foundation, and astronomer Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. The Whale SETI study was conducted under Permit 19703 to Fred Sharp and the Alaska Whale Foundation from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And a very special thanks to the humpback whale, Twain, for her participation. Twain, we hope you like the show, too. Aw, thanks, Twain. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue dot.